give credit, you know, where credit is due. A lot of the studying I've been doing on the book of James is from the work of a scholar named Darian Lockett and using his um, uh, Lagos mobile ed course on the book of James. And so I highly recommend if you have access to, to Lagos, the Bible software, I highly recommend that software. It's amazing. Uh, if you ever get a chance to to see it, I uh, recommend his work a lot. And it's been very helpful, bringing a lot of uh, in, in enlightening and to me, really causing me to think through the issues that we see here in the book of James. And just so, by way of introduction, kind of reminding us, James is, the one of, is one of seven books in the Bible that are called the Catholic Epistles. And by Catholic, it's not a reference to a denomination. It's a reference to meaning universal. In other words, these epistles aren't written to a specific church. They're written to the church in general. And, and they, were, they were circulated by the early church as one of seven, meaning that that's a, that's a number of completeness. They understood that it's a biblical number. They would often add the book of Acts to it. And um, they, they had unique themes. I, in fact, as we're going through this, I recommend that, that you read all seven of them together because you'll see the themes repeated between them and they broaden the subject matter. So they start with the book of James. They get James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude. Those are the seven books. And if you notice, they start with a brother of Jesus, James. Actually, his name's Jacob. They start with Jacob and they end with Jude. Actually, his name is Judah. So uh, they start and begin with uh, bro- two brothers of Jesus, and, and their authors are con- were considered uh, to be pillars in the faith. James, Peter, John, these were considered to be pillars. And the, um, James, when he's writing this letter, and uh, he's writing it, you know, as we, as, we, as we discussed, he's writing it to the Jewish communities that are throughout, Jewish believers that are throughout the world. They're in what's called the diaspora and so that's a big fancy word, meaning these are Jews outside of Israel. And now why were they there? They were there because God had exiled Israel from the land. He had exiled them because of his judgment. And he addresses them to the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Why would he bring up something negative like that? Because Jesus, because over and over it's promised in, his, in, in the word of God that, that the Lord will bring the kingdom back. And he sees that fulfilled. He sees that judgment, that uh, that promise to end the judgment fulfilled in Christ. And so by saying that, he's saying, listen, this is the point of hope. The point of hope of our faith, Jesus, our Messiah. to To whom he starts off with, I'm not, he doesn't start off with his, I'm his brother. He says, I start off with, I'm his servant. I'm his slave. I'm here to serve him. So this is, this is how he starts. This is the, 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 um, uh, who he's addressing. He's following this pattern of the priesthood in Jerusalem that would send letters regularly to the Jewish communities outside of Israel in order to instruct them in the faith, instruct them of the practice of the faith. And that's one thing about this letter we've talked about. Very practical about the, actually how do we apply this faith that we have. And how many know, like the rest of the word of God, it universally applies to all believers in all times and all places. So and I trust as we open up this morning, we'll see some things along that line. Now, how does James do this? He uses this motif called the two ways motif. And I bring it up again because we're going to see him do that in our, in our, 
uh, in our lesson this week, in, in, in the book this week. And what he does is he contrasts. There's a way of life and there's a way of death. And that's how he teaches. He teaches over and over. This is the way of death. This is the way of life. It was a very common way of teaching. It goes all the way back to the Torah. And we see it used throughout the Bible. It's used throughout the letters and the writings uh, all through antiquity. Um, well, even, uh, you'll even see uh, authors who will use it today. Um, and, it's, and it's drawing on this motif. And what is the, the contrast he's specifically given? He's specifically given what does it mean to be whole No, he'll use the word, we'll see it often translated in your Bibles as the word perfect. Okay? So, how many in here want to be perfect? Hmm. Brave souls. We are the brave souls. But what does it mean by perfect? It means to be whole. It means to be whole. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. That's the ideal, and we live towards that. But it means to be whole in your heart. Your heart wholly given to him because when your heart is wholly given to him your life follows suit you will struggle in the the pursuit of wholeness in the pursuit of the path of life that's what he means and so that's one contrast the other side is the way of death the way of the, the earthly way following the the ways of this world and these are the two sides that he contrasts and what does he call that he calls that being double minded now why double minded because you may have words that say you're following the way of life but in fact your actions show you following the way of death and he calls that double minded and he says don't let not the double-minded person think they will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because it's about the wholeness of your heart. You're not following him with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, uh, 29, 11 says, uh, for I know the paths, the, the um, paths that I have for you, Lord, paths of peace, paths of hope. Most of us know that verse, but two verses later, it says, you will see, you will find me when you seek me, if you seek me with your whole heart. And that's the heart of God. It's not about seeking him with sinless perfection. It's about seeking him with everything that we got. Search my heart, David says, and see if there be any way in me that is anxious that would be leading to the way of death. Lead me in the paths to life. And so this is, this is how the setup of James. And so... Um, we, we, his, he, his, the chapter one gives us like a kind of a table of contents of the whole thing. And then two through five breaks down all of these concepts, this way of life versus way of death. All right. So when we get to chapter three, there's two concepts he has, and we're going to talk about this morning in chapter three. One, he gives this, he gives us an essay on the ethical use of the tongue, how we use our tongue. And, um, and I'm not, when I'm, when I say by that, what I mean is, uh, there are some people who could actually take the stem of a cherry, put it in their mouth, and tie it in a knot with their tongue. That's, that's a really talented thing, but that's not the kind of the use of the tongue we're talking about. We're talking about the, the words that we speak and the life that we have as a result. And so the, the, second, the second thing in the, in the subject becomes two types of wisdom. Wisdom from, uh, in the chapter, to, wisdom from above versus earthly wisdom. All right. So, now to understand James, James assumes his audience has a certain knowledge. He assumes his audience knows the scriptures. 
he begins to just like kind of jump in the middle of conversation that he assumed everyone already has the background of. And, and in these chapters right here, he draws heavily from Genesis chapter 1. You see, in the ancient world, you know, one of the, if we, if we, the best way of understanding Genesis chapter 1, I mean, no, that's the creation story. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, these are the creation stories, okay? The best way of understanding them is to understand them in the context and when they were written, as, as ancient literature. Now, in all of the ancient, ancient, what the Bible often does, especially in the book of Genesis, is, is it, it looks at culture, and what's going on in culture, and it addresses what's going on in culture with the, with the re- revealing of who God is and how he would speak to what's going on in culture. What do I mean? In the ancient world, how many know there's a lot of different competing stories about how the world was created? There were many stories in the ancient world about how all this came about. And so when, when, when this story was put together, it was to answer all of those stories. And so notice, how does it start? It starts with chaos. It starts with this big body of water and it's chaotic. It's chaos. And the spirit of God comes and hovers over this water. See, in the ancient world, they understood that everything that, that exists came out of chaos, out of the waters. They believed in these great sea creatures that, that, that created, uh, were cre- created things out of the chaos of this water. And how does the Bible start? Here's this chaos, and God comes along, and what does he do? He speaks, and he brings order to chaos. He speaks, and all of a sudden, everything that is chaotic becomes orderly. And he does this over and over. And every time he does, it becomes more ordered and more ordered and more ordered and more ordered until finally, in all of that, he creates a being who is like unto himself. One in his image who also has the ability to bring order over chaos, reflecting him. If you get that, you understand why you are on earth. You and I were created to be imagers of the living God, to reflect him, to take chaos and make order out of it, to take that which is uh, disorderly and bring order to it, to create flourishing. Is that not exactly what the kingdom of God has done everywhere it has gone? Schools, hospitals, orphanages, the changing of entire ethical systems of entire nations and empires. That's what the kingdom of God has done. That is the purpose. And see, this is the background in which James is writing. He understands this. He knows that his audience understands this. And he begins to address these subjects from this perspective. Because something else happens in Genesis. What happens is this being who is created in a likeness of this incredible creating God goes very wrong and uses, and by the very means of word, has God said, rebels against the word of God until death, corruption, destruction, and separation have, uh, uh, have been accomplished in the earth. And it is from that point forward for the entire Bible, what do we see? We see this God of order, of love, of truth coming into creation to recreate the order he had from beginning. Ultimately, ultimately satisfied in what? Well, 
What does John say? In the beginning was the, everybody say it with me, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John in 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. You see the ultimate ordering of everything. So this is the background. This is the backdrop. Now from there, let's take a look at James chapter 3 here. All right. Tamed and untamed tongues. So now, now many of you should now, let me say it again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who, are, who teach will be judged with greater, with greater strictness. Sorry. For we will stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Now, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, and we guide their whole bodies as well, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or great, or um, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And that's where he talks about the tongue. Wow, powerful language, isn't it? Do you see the imagery? Do you see the connections? He's referring to creation over and over. He's referring to being made in the likeness of God. He's going with this assumption. There is where he's coming from. And he starts off with this verse and he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And right now I'm going to sit down. That's to me one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Jesus put it another way. It's better... For a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be cast into the middle of the sea than to cause the least of one of these of mine to stumble. You see, it's not that somehow that if you're a teacher, that somehow you're put on a pedestal or you're great or something like that. That's not what it means at all. What he's saying is, if you're a teacher, you're standing, if I'm talking one-on-one with somebody, I could say something, and I could say something wrong, I could say something errant, I could lead them in a wrong place, and that would be a bad thing. But if you're a teacher, you're in a place that, that people are listening to you and you're talking to a whole lot of people and if you say something wrong, that just gets multiplied. And if there's one thing they were dealing with in the early church over and over and over again, which it seems like throughout the church we've never stopped dealing with, right? Are people who share things falsely, false prophets, false teachers, errors. Now this is not about every word coming out perfectly. I've got to tell myself that. It's about having the right spirit and the heart about what we're saying and making every attempt to rightly understand it so that what we talk about we know to be truth. To for sure not share something 
in order to try to manipulate or challenge or get people to act in the way you want them to. And so this is where he starts. He starts with this. Now, now, let me ask you a question. How does a teacher teach? With what? Words. Words. With the tongue. This is how this section starts. And so he starts with words. These, this is how did God create? How did God bring order? With the word. How, what is a teacher? So he starts with the teacher. And then where does he go? He uses this imagery to illustrate the power of the tongue. He says, we, we, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though, though they're so large, they're driven by strong winds, yet they're guided by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, we, we stumble, we make mistakes, we make error. What's the point? The point is if anyone doesn't stumble, he is a perfect man. He is a whole man. He's able to bridle his whole body. What is that saying? When you are struggling and you are reaching to, to get control of what comes out of your mouth, which is a demonstration of what is in your heart, because we'll see that in a second, what is a demonstration of what is in your heart, then you are becoming a whole person. But when, when, when you have no care for what you speak and how you treat others and what's going on, you're, you're literally divisive, destructive, and you're double-minded. All right, so he uses this illustration, a couple of illustrations. The first one he uses is a bit in a horse. Has anybody here ridden a horse before? How many horseback people do we have? Okay, so for those that are unaware, I, I, I actually have a little bit of experience with horses, not a lot. Um, and, but I grew up with a friend who had a horse. We lived in the suburbs, actually, and you would think, how could you have a horse in the suburb? Well, in Baltimore County, if you had an acre, you could live in the suburb. I mean, you could, uh, no. If you had an acre, you could have a horse. And so his grandparents had an acre. It was a long, narrow piece of lot, and they used to keep a horse out back. And so I went over all the time. I was really, when I was young especially, quite afraid of these huge animals, these huge, powerful animals. But I learned very quickly the power of a bit. And I learned there were different kinds of bits. And certain bits would actually control the horse better than other bits. And I remember, especially when I was, uh, when I was younger, and I'd see bigger horses, and I'd know that I was going to ride that horse. I'd go, what kind of bit are you putting in it? I want the one I know I can really control that horse with. Because <laughs> you're going to put me on the back of that horse. That's a big animal. So th- this, this concept that that little tiny bit where, in the tongue, by the way, in the mouth, literally can guide that entire horse to go where you want, to do what you want. It's a very important part of riding, especially if you have a horse that's not quite as trained or tamed as others. There was... Um, there was one time, uh, I said about 20 years ago, uh, my wife and kids went back east, and they um, uh, uh, spent like several weeks back there visiting family. And while I was here, I had some friends who invited me to spend the weekend. We went canoeing, when we went, uh, we were going to go horseback riding at this at this farm. So we're at the farm, and they got the horses ready. And they were, as they're getting the horses ready, there were only three at a time, and they asked for the first three people, and I volunteered, I'll go, and this will be great. And so we only had three horses, 
And then we have one who's more spirited and two who are more kind of like followers. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't put me on the follower. I No. So they, they said, okay, we'll put you on this horse, but we just got to warn you, this horse doesn't like men. <laughs> it really didn't like men. This horse did not like men. So I was like, okay, that's all right. I'll be fine. So I get on the horse, and we ride the trails, and this horse did, it, you clearly had a mind of its own. It clearly did not like me on it. It clearly wanted to go where it wanted to go. And I was thanking God for the bit in its mouth. Because that little bit in his mouth helped me. In fact, there was about a five-foot timber rattler on the trail. Fortunately, the horse did not see the timber rattler. I saw the timber rattler go off into the woods. And so we come out of the trail, and there's a barn off in the distance. And the horse goes, ah, barn, I'm getting this guy off my back. It starts taking off running towards the barn. So I just said, whoa, I hold this horse up. I, t- I make the horse turn around. But that horse was walking like so, I mean, it was like sulking. It was funny. The horse actually was sulking, going away. It was so slow. I was like, that was fine as long as you go the way I want you to go. Because we weren't going back to the barn. We were going up to the house. So finally, I turned the horse around, and, and, and we, go, we go by the barn. We get up to the house, and three more riders come out. Well, the, young, the first rider that comes out was this uh, teenage girl. She's about 15 or 16. And, and, and I looked at her. I said, hey, are, are you going to ride this horse? And she looks at me and goes, yeah. I said, well, are, are you an experienced rider? She looks at me and gives me that whatever look. I said, no, if you're not an experienced rider, trust me, you don't want to get on this horse. And she really gave me the whatever. I'm like, okay. So about 15 minutes later, here comes this girl walking back to the house. <laughs> no idea where the horse is. <laughs> I said, do I said, where? What happened to the horse? That horse threw me off. Well, I told you you didn't want to get on that horse if you weren't an experienced rider. She goes, I know you told me that, but I didn't believe you. The word of the tongue. What do we choose to believe and how do we choose to act? You know, um, if you get the, 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 this rudder on a boat is tiny compared to the size of the boat. Gales, you, have, you, have, you can picture uh, winds blowing a sailboat across a sea and this little tiny rudder, small part. What happens if that breaks? Your prayer life increases. Lord, you're in control, right? <laughs> and so James is making these analogies and he goes on, but he does something here. He says, look, look. We put, we put, we put a, a bit in a horse mouth. We put a, a rudder on a ship. And these big, strong things are guided by these little, tiny things. He says, this tongue is just like this tiny part of our body, yet it boasts of great things. Now, to boast of great things is not a good thing. It's like it speaks, uh, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like Daniel's used of, of the beast boasting of grace, great things. There's pride coming out of it right here. And it says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a fire. He takes, this, he takes this change. He takes this imagery, and it goes from control to being out of control. Instead of the small thing controlling, he takes this as this small thing is what leads us to be out of control. And he contrasts it. He says, the person who doesn't control this is literally out of control. Literally out of control. 
says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Listen, we're reading a book that was written somewhere in the first century A.D. And you know what we're speaking to? Directly to our culture. You know, when I was a kid, if you got bullied at school, you could at least go home. You could get away from it. Now if you get bullied, you can't get away from it anywhere. We live in a world that cancels one another. And that's what we call it. You're canceled. James's language here couldn't be any more appropriate. A fire set ablaze by hell itself. But you know, the church is just as much to blame as the world. How often have we seen a brother or a sister fail and we're the first one to jump and want to cancel them? How often have we heard somebody share something or teach on something and say something a little differently than how we believe it and we want to be the first one to cancel them or jump on the bandwagon to do it? You see, the whole thing about the, that, that James is getting to here is this is a pure description of what happened in Genesis after the fall. The tongue represents the fall of man itself. Has God said? We, we actually have science now. We, we, we have the actual science, the hard science, that by, by words coming from people's mouths, it can actually damage us physiologically. The quickest way, the quickest way to, to divide is how? Words. You don't have to do anything. Just speak words. You don't have to speak it. Just ask questions in a way that make people question. Gossip, division. It doesn't even have to be heresies. It could be attitude. And James, you know, when he gets to this section, he says what? He says, it's, it's a world of unrighteousness. It's a fire. I love how he uses the contrast of fire. He starts off in the beginning, you know, the fiery trials, like fire is a good thing in, in that it purifies. And now he's using the contrast of fire. Here's fire, a bad thing, when we can cause a fire to happen from a small bark. It says an entire forest fire set from a small blaze. I was, um, oh, I've told it, I'll, I'll tell on myself again. I was seven years old. So remember the seven-year-old part. Everybody's going to remember the rest of the story. They won't remember the seven-year-old part. I was seven years old, and I had a friend who was um, about 12, actually. He's 10 or 12. So he was a few years older than I was. And we had this, there was a field behind his house, and off to the edge of the field was a woods. And, um, and so we decided we wanted to build a little tiny campfire there at the woods. And so he had a book of matches, and we, we go up, and he says, hey, let's start it right here. And he lights a match and throws it on the ground. He says, no, you know what? This is not a good spot. Let's do it over here. So he lights another one and throws it on the ground. So he does this three or four times. But then, all of a sudden, it starts growing. And so he's over there, and he's stamping it out like this, right? And he's trying to put this fire out. And, and I'm sitting now. How low was I? Remember that now. Okay. Um, here I am, and he's like, stamp it out, stamp it out. And I'm like, no, I don't want to burn my, burn, get burned. Seven-year-old. 
So he goes, okay, okay, let's get out of the house and get a bucket of water. So we walk down to his house and we find a bucket, we get it out and we fill it up. And so we come back up and we're, we're, we come at the end of his yard and we look across the field and we look over there and it's, it's like flames. <laughs> we're like, oh no, we got to go tell your mom to call the fire department. And so we start to walk to his mom and go, wait, 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 wait. We got to get rid of the bucket of water first. <laughs> so nobody asks us why we have the water. <laughs> so we get, we get rid of the bucket of water. We tell his mom, the fire department come out. But then the police come out. I'm going to jail. How old was I? Thank you. I knew I was going to jail. Police come up to me. Did you see who started this? Yes, sir. Who was it? We were both had brown hair and, and, and brown eyes. It was two really, really big kids. They had blonde hair and blue eyes, and they went that way. <laughs> the police took off through the woods looking after them. I ran. I literally, as soon as I saw the police, I ran home and got into a closet and hid inside my closet. <laughs> About two years later, this friend had moved away. About two, three years later, an- another fire started up in the field behind his house. I'm going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And I'm walking around the neighborhood telling everybody, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. They're like, we didn't think you did. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. We didn't intend to set the forest on fire. We were playing around. I carried that with me a lot of years until I calculated the statute of limitations. Anyway. (laughs) I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to say that. So James says what? He says, we, he says there's two possible results. Two possible results. James 3, 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. He's able to bridle his whole body. He says what? He says control leads to wholeness. Developing self-control. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Allowing the Holy Spirit Growing in your relationship with the Holy Spirit, allowing the grace of God to bring more and more control in your life makes you a whole person. But James 3, 6 says, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Now notice, notice the the, the parallel here. Because why? Because um, what does he say in James 1, 27? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you want to be pure, you want to be holy, you keep yourself unstained. The, the, the refusing to control the tongue, which means what? Refusing to, to, uh, uh, the, to use the creative word that God has put in you for the true, the good, and the beautiful. There it is. Refusing to use the word that God has created you to be in him, his reflection, his image.
Refusing to do that stains the whole body. Now, there's a double entendre going on there. That not only stains you, but it stains what? The whole body. The whole body. So then he gets into this animal imagery. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, what is he doing here as he's, as he's closing this section out? What is he doing? He's, he's saying, look, he's going all the way back to creation. And he's going, and actually, he's, actually goes to the command to, to, to Noah as well in Genesis 9. And what does he bring? He's bringing the animals, the sea creatures, the birds. And he's saying, what? what? What has man done? Man has literally been able to tame everything in nature. And then he goes on later, and, and he says this. Uh, uh, let me find it first. He says, he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear, bear olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? He's saying, listen, everything in nature does what it is by nature. You never see, you'll, you will never go to a, a salt water, uh, a body of water and out comes spring, spring water. You'll never go to a fig tree and off come olives. Everything in nature does what it is by nature. We're the only beings in all of creation that have the ability to act other than what we were created intended to do. That's the trust God has given to us. That's what it means to have a relationship with him. And so what is his answer for that? Because he leaves this section at this low point. The tongue is, is destructive. The tongue brings uh, uh, um, all of the, the, uh, the ills of humanity demonstrated for us in not being controlled. And, he, and his answer for it is the next section. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what does he do? He says the answer to it is wisdom that is from above. What is he doing? He's making this comparison. The tongue that is loose, the tongue that's not controlled is like earthly wisdom. It's like bitter jealousy. It's like selfish ambition. It's like seeking after that which is for yourself. It's like party factions, creating party factions. It's, like it's, it's not being satisfied with what you have, but desiring what other people have, and, and, and intensely where you want to chase after it. And he says, this is earthly wisdom that, that says, go for it, you know, go for it. Go live your life for yourself. Pull yourself by your own boots, up by your own bootstraps, and go after everything. doesn't matter about the other person. He says, this is earthly wisdom. This is a demonstration of the tongue on fire. This is a demonstration of everything that went wrong with humanity. He says, but there's another wisdom, and that wisdom is from above. And he shared all, he already started this in chapter one. 
He said, if any of us lacks wisdom, we but what? Need ask God. You see, the wisdom we need to overcome the tongue isn't our own. It is divinely granted by his grace. The wisdom we need is divinely granted by his grace. He says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him but ask of God, who gives to all liberally and freely. But when you ask, you need to ask in faith. You need to ask trusting, believe. That doesn't mean you don't have questions. It, it, when it says don't ask in doubt, it doesn't mean you don't have questions. We can have questions. It means your heart. Ask with a whole heart. Look, God, I don't understand this. I don't know why this, and I don't know that. But I know that there is a wisdom that comes from you. It is peaceable. It brings order to chaos. It speaks, and light, life, and love comes as a result. That's the wisdom I desire. So all you need to do is ask him and he gives it liberally and freely. And can I tell you, without fail, with having nothing to do with me earning it, with having nothing to do with me deserving it, over and over and over, over, God has poured out his wisdom. Now what's really fascinating is this ties to the understanding of wisdom in Second Temple Israel, in Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple refers to the period of time about four or five hundred BC to about one two hundred AD. Right, the, the couple of hundred, two three hundred years before Jesus, and about a hundred years after. That's Second Temple Judaism. And they had this understanding. They they opened up Proverbs. It says, "Wisdom is crying out from the street corner. Wisdom wants to give you the path to life." Wisdom was to lead you from the way of death. And they said that wisdom, that wisdom was with God when he created the world. That wisdom is always, that wisdom is eternal. That wisdom is in fact the reflection in the image of God himself. And Paul puts it all together in Colossians and says, in Jesus is all the wisdom and under knowledge of God. Jesus is the wisdom. And James is saying, if you want to tame the tongue, it's by his grace that he will divinely give you when you freely ask him, when you ask him with a whole heart. And when you do, he makes your heart whole. He begins to put out the fires. Amen. Amen. 